right. Hey, turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and we start in verse 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and this is God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. They would all wash their hands before they ate. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray one more time. Father... May the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, folks, years ago, I think 15 years ago, I was on a mission trip to uh, Ukraine. Um, And it's not the Ukraine. There's the Yukon, but Ukraine is Ukraine. You wouldn't say the Mexico or the Canada. It's Ukraine. So I went to Ukraine, and what was significant about that trip was that uh, a year earlier, a, uh, the, the Ukrainian symphony had come through Memphis, and uh, they stayed with a bunch of people from Grace of Van. And we had two Ukrainian guys in our house. One only ate meat, and the other guy was on a hunger strike. Um, so, uh, but, the, but the guy who ate meat was an atheist. And uh, so he was in our house, and we, we, he was with us for a few days, and then Ani goes, well, a year later, I'm in Ukraine. And uh, I'm invited to his house. And that was a really groovy experience. Um, you know, I, I've got this address. There's no self, there's no GPS or anything. I'm just following this piece of paper through like this spooky looking Soviet era housing. And let me tell you, it's all ugly. It's ugly. I mean, everything the Soviets built was hideous. And so you're walking around. And so I go up to his apartment and it's, he's on like on the 19th floor. And um, their apartment, five people live there. The, the mom, dad, the, uh, uh, another couple, and a kid. Um, their apartment was as big as our master bedroom and bathroom. And five people were living there, and there was a, a baby grand piano in the middle of it all. And uh, the parents had a bedroom. Uh, there was a fold-out couch, and the kids slept on a mattress under the piano. Anyway, they had me over for dinner, and uh, they, they've got all their good Ukrainian stuff out there. And so they've got it all for dinner. And they're going to have this borscht and all this other stuff. And uh, there's a little shot glass and everything. And so I, I, uh, I bless the food. Even though they're an atheist family, they, they tolerate me. And I bless the food. And um, I say amen. And I open my eyes. And they're pouring vodka into the shot glass. And uh, they're all leaning in. Go ahead. So I say, amen, there's vodka in a shot glass, and I'm looking at it, and, uh, and, and they're just all leaning forward, staring at me. And I, I said, well, are, aren't you guys going to have some too? 
I mean, there's food on my plate. They don't have any food yet. There's food on my plate. There's a shot of vodka. I said, aren't you going to have anything? They were like, no, too, too expensive. You, you, you have. And so they're all leaning forward. Now, what would you do? You know what I did? Bam, kung, you know, in your face. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, not, I've not forgotten that. And, and then they had some food, but they never had the, they, they took out the special Russian stuff for the visitor. It was like this big thing to them. Now, what would you, I, I thought, what, what, would, what would like uh, the, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Plano, Texas do, I wonder? Uh, what would you do? All to say, ladies and gentlemen, with that illustration, I start us off a bit off track, I confess. Um, but I do so because this, this, this uh, story of Jesus' first miracle, this, this wedding where he turns uh, water into wine, all anybody really remembers is the, is the, um, uh, the, the, the um, controversy over alcohol. That, that's about all anybody remembers about this, this, this story. And um, there's so much more to the story. You know what the story is about? I'll show you. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, John calls them signs. The other gospel writers call them miracles. He calls them signs throughout. Seven times he talks about Jesus' signs. Um, This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. That's, that's what we're supposed to take away from the passage, not controversy about alcohol, which I won't gloss over, by the way. We will talk about it. But friends, this is the idea in, in shorthand. Jesus is who he claims to be. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him via this miracle. That's what's happening here. Now, I've mentioned a number of times that the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they, they, they're similar. They have similar stories, similar storylines, um, similar sources. Um, and, of course, they're all told from different perspectives, and they're written to different audiences. It's true. But the synoptics um, are different than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John reads and feels differently um, immediately. Now, if, if Mark's Gospel, which we, ta- which we studied a few years ago, moves at a really brisk pace, it's true, uh, the Gospel of John slows down and, and blows open uh, Jesus' earthly life and ministry. I mean, it, it, it really, um, we see Jesus as the divine one who was sent for us with divine provisions. That's, that's John's aim in writing all this. And so, um, um, let's move on. Make no mistake, Jesus is God. Oh yeah, chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory as only the uh, son from the father, full of grace and truth. Yes, he dwelt among us. That's true. He's human. But glory, he's the God man. This is John's aim. He wants to see that, uh, that Jesus is who he claims to be. So in short, the synoptic writers, when they talk about uh, miracles, um, they're more um, uh, established the kingdom minded. They're more eschatological. So when Jesus performs a miracle, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking at it like, see, he's establishing his kingdom. You see, he's establishing the spiritual kingdom, and that's going to come to a consummation. So they're thinking kind of eschatologically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all right? John is thinking differently. He's thinking Christologically. He's thinking this verifies that Jesus is who he claims to be. That's John's aim, and thus 
our main idea today. All right, so our first of three points today, a defining moment, accepting Jesus. Let's look at verse one together. On the third day. Now, uh, that's the third day after Jesus secures Philip and Nathaniel, okay? So on the third day, uh, after he, he get, grabs these uh, next couple disciples, it goes on. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, this place, Cana in Galilee, no one's really sure where it is. Uh, scholars debate. Uh, it could be, you know, some people think it's eight or nine miles. Some people think it's 72 miles. Um, but no one's really sure. And so since no one's really sure, it doesn't really make any sense to debate about it, okay? But what's, what is notable, and by the way, there were lots of Canas, just like there's Jackson, Tennessee and Jackson, Mississippi, and probably a Jackson in 46 states. There were lots of Canas, very popular city name. Um, but um, uh, what's notable about it is what's not notable about it. It's not like it was some Mecca. It's not like it was some thoroughfare of commerce or anything like that. It was some small, rinky-dinky place, uh, not a lot of fanfare. And that talks a lot about um, Jesus, too, the nature of what he came to do. Um, He he wasn't born in some prestigious place. His first miracle wasn't in some prestigious place. Rather, he was born in humility. Uh, He was brought into this life not in a palace, but... um, uh, among livestock, <laughs> um, a humble beginning. And so it, this kind of shows you even where the miracle takes place, that Jesus came um, not to be served, but to serve in humility uh, and, and lay his glory aside. So um, again, um, it's, it, John calls it a sign. And notice too that uh, in verse two, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, why was Jesus invited to this wedding? Um, it, don't think, oh, well, he was uh, super popular by now, and the crowds were following him, and, and they wanted his uh, uh, you know, honorable presence at the wedding. No, he's only a few days into his earthly ministry. I mean, he just left the wilderness. He just left temptation in the wilderness. He wanders up to John, and a week later, here he is. He's invited to the wedding. Why? Well, it tells us. Um, 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 at the end of verse 1, and the mother of Jesus was there. And what else about the mother of Jesus? Well, um, it, it's, um, it's quite apparent that she is privy to the running out of wine. And what you need to remember about weddings back then is that they shared some similar stuff with our weddings, okay? Um, you know, every culture does a wedding differently. Clark, Grant, Clark and uh, Alicia Grantham just came back from a wedding in India, and I mean, their wedding ceremonies are, there's the henna tattoos and all the colors and the funky stage looking thing. And I mean, it's, it's very different, but it, it's similar to ours in that it's a celebratory event. It's the sacred installation of an institution. Uh, these two are designated publicly. Uh, this kind of a thing happens. Um, and so there, there's similarities in weddings when they take place uh, from India to here to 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine, all right? But what was different about their kind of wedding was this. Their weddings lasted for a week. You know, talk about sucking the money. Um, their wedding lasted a week, and it was the bridegroom's uh, responsibility to, to pay for it all, and people were coming and going the whole time. So there was a ceremony, but it was this big celebration. They could last a week long, and, you know, somebody might come on Monday, then disappear. They come back on Thursday. Somebody might come from afar. They show up on Friday, the last day. And so just people are coming and going. It was just a big party. And so it's, it's likely, you know, it says the and the mother of Jesus was there. It's likely that she was part of the organizing team. 
uh, because she's, again, privy to the fact that they're running out of wine, um, and so she comes to Jesus and, and, and so on. Now, um, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we have to pause just for a second because right at this point, whether you know it or not, a lot of bizarro theology has emerged. Um, and what I mean by bizarro theology is the Roman Catholic Church, um, the elevation of Mary. They say, oh, well, this is proof. Uh, when, when Mary goes to Jesus and say they have no wine, um, uh, that's, that's Jesus controlling her son. And so there's some, you can see how some weird theology could be piled on top of the scene. They go, well, this is, G, this is Mary controlling her son, uh, and so uh, Mary should be exalted, and uh, there's even this co-redemptrix idea that Mary and Jesus uh, are, are on par redemptively and so on. Ridiculous. Uh, quite the opposite of, of that is happening. She doesn't get bumped up the redemption chain. What Mary does in this scene is get set right, Okay. Here's what happens in verse 4. Jesus says to her, she says, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, when you see that, uh, don't think gangsta. He's not like, woman, you know, go fetch me. He's not, it's not that. He's not woman. It's if, in fact, if you have an NIV, it says, dear woman. Um, I call Tammy woman every once in a while. You know why? She's a woman. And, uh, and furthermore, I'm like Tarzan. She's my woman, you know. And, then the, and reciprocally, she, I'm her man, you know. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an endearing term. It's not, a, it's not a demeaning term at all. He's saying basically, dear woman, 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 uh, what does this have to do with me? But you see what else Jesus is doing. He's not going, oh, mom, listen. <laughs> mom, what do you, hey, 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 mom, you, you, remember, <clears throat> you remember the virgin birth and all that? <laughs> remember when the angel came to you? I uh, remember when Elizabeth came and, uh, and uh, John the Baptist jumped for joy. You know, that guy, over there, John the Baptist. Um, he doesn't say all that. Um, he says, woman. It's, 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 it's endearing. It's a tender term, not a harsh term. But it's a, it's a defining term. It's a term that changes everything. He's, he's not saying mom. He's, he's, there's, there's, a, there's a formality about the way he answers. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Basically, what he's saying to his mom is, it's not time for me to die. Oh, I was born to die. I was born to be a substitutionary curse bearer. Jesus, not, not at all confused about his mission. He knows what he's there to do, but he's saying, mom, it's not time. If we blow this thing wide open, they're going to want to kill me right away. My hour has not yet come. Now his hour will come, and he'll specifically say, I think three more times in John, he will say, the hour's come. He will, he will allude to that, and, and specifically in John 17, he will say, Father, the hour has come. But it hadn't come yet. And so in this wedding at Cana, and so notice the way he addresses his mother when he says woman. You know, it's kind of like, sounds like Fred Sanford um, a little bit. But it's, it's not demeaning. It is setting her straight. And notice the response of Mary. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she gets it. Now, I don't want to impose my own personal opinion into the scriptures, but y'all have a mom? Are some of you a mom? 
well, I just think there might be a tiny little loving, laughing whiff of, of Mary submitting and, and, and going, uh, I get it. I get it. I remember the angel. I remember what you're here for. Uh, do whatever he says. Still wish he would do it. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of a, but, but if you can, that would be awesome. <laughs> but, but I understand, you know. I, 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 that just might be me. St- please don't let me infect the text. But just knowing, knowing the, just the sweetnesses of, of motherhood in those relationships, couldn't, couldn't you just see it? Maybe. But whatever the case, Jesus is very clear, and it is very clear that Mary understands, oh, okay, do whatever he says. I get it, Jesus. I get it. And uh, so, friends, how do we apply this to your life? Well, um, I finally got my wife to watch The Godfather. Uh, just the last part of it. She came home from, what did you come home from? School. She had a thing at school. She comes home and, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm watching The Godfather for the 47th time. And, uh, you know, I'm able to say, you know, before the line comes, I'm like, they killed Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. You know, I'm able to quote all these lines. And um, at the end of The Godfather, you know, where, where he lies to his wife, where he lies to Diane Keaton, and, uh, and uh, she doesn't know that she, he killed the brother-in-law, Anyway, these, these dudes walk in, and they, they start shaking Michael's hand, the new Don, the new, the new godfather. They start kissing his ring. Another guy comes in and kisses his ring, and Diane Keaton's out of, this, out of this room, and they shut the door. It goes black, and that's the end of the movie. Um, and, and you get it. You're like, oh, now I understand. He's the godfather. He's got all the power. I mean, he is really at the very, very apex all right, now flip it from the sinful underworld <laughs> to the righteous overworld. It's that idea. Mary sees this Jesus, and, she, and he, he, he makes a claim to her, and she goes, okay, I get it, and I receive it. You know, R.C. Sproul tweeted something um, a, a couple weeks ago, and this is how you apply it to your life. He said this, when God, said some, when God says something, the argument is over. That pretty good? That's, that's where Mary's heart was. She is, she's understood that he's, he's God, he's divine, he's of the same stuff as the Father, and he's got the ultimate authority. That's, that's the way it is in the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen. When God says something, the argument is over. All right, our next point. A gracious service, the personal Jesus. Uh, let's look at verse six. Now there were six stone water jars. Uh, there for the Jewish rite of purification. Again, um, they, uh, <clears throat> they would wash their hands and uh, they would purify themselves. And so uh, those weren't like earthenware pots used normally for wine. They were, they were stone uh, uh, jars and they were big. And it tells us that they each held 20 or 30 gallons. That's pretty big. That's 150 gallons. Uh, that means that Jesus made about 600 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. Um, and so Jesus tells them, fill up the jars with water. Now, one thing that I love about this is that it's easy um, to get into the jugs and the gallons and the wine and, and, the, and all that kind of stuff and miss the kindness of God, the, the tenderness of the Savior. Um, his mother says, hey, we're out of wine. It's a bad reflection on the groom. And by the way, I know this is hard to understand, but the groom could actually be sued 
uh, back then if he ran out of stuff for the, the wedding. There could be a lawsuit against him for messing up the, messing up the affair. So Jesus steps in and does this thing out of mercy, out of kindness. He, he, he says, my time has not yet come, but he finds a way to do a miracle that's understated, and he supplies, um, he supplies for them. Um, so Jesus, he makes a clarification to his mother. She readily embraces it. He does the thing anyway, and there's a sweetness to it uh, that I think we should kind of tuck away uh, about all that. And by the way, it's a miracle that very few people knew about. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. But here's what Jesus does. Verse 6, he uh, tells them to get the stone jars, and uh, uh, they each held 20 to 30 gallons. He says that the servants filled the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, what is the significance of them filling them up to the brim? The significance is uh, it, that there was no little uh, magic trick involved. Oh, yeah, oh, and by the way, a concentrate made from, you know, Kool-Aid. Um, there, there's no little trick. They're filled to the brim. Uh, no cheap attitudes, uh, additives. Um, it goes on. He said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Master of the feast tasted it, and he, and he, he didn't know where it came from. The servants did, of course. And he's like, oh, my goodness, um, I can't, uh, I can't believe. Normally, people that bring out the crummy stuff after the good stuff's gone, but you flipped it. This is fantastic wine. Now, friends, let's stop here for the great controversy. Um, wine is mentioned in the Bible, how many times do you think? Ish. 30, 50. I mean, that's what I would think, too. At least 212, and some people say three, more than 300. Talking about strong drink and, and beer as a brawler and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it's mentioned in the scriptures at least 212 times. That's a lot of times for wine to be mentioned in the Bible, a lot. And um, sometimes those references are negative, and sometimes those references are positive. Now, concerning drunkenness, it's always negative, always negative drunkenness. But uh, sometimes uh, it's, it's, it's a positive thing, and sometimes it's not. Um, um, and so what, what has happened because of cultural sensitivities, um, people will try to go, oh, well, here's, here's why it can't mean real alcohol, all right? And so here's what they've come up with. Here, here's some of the biggies. They'll say, well, it was diluted wine from the dregs in the stone jars. They'll say, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I can't stomach the thought of Jesus making an alcoholic beverage. I mean, I really can't. So um, maybe there were some dregs in the bottom of those stone jars and uh, they added the water, and, you know, the, the concentrate came, and, uh, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that the dregs in the bottom of the jars would produce good wine, notably better than the other stuff? Ridiculous. Oh, and by the way, those weren't earthen vessels. They were hand-washing jars. There was no wine in them previously. All right, so that's ridiculous. Here's another one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, what... <laughs> R.C. Sproul uh, in his commentary, and then he, he remembers this from growing up when his preacher used to say this, and another guy actually quotes a guy who said this, that the preacher would get up there and say, well, um, water is the best wine. So yeah, Jesus had him filling him up with water, but you know, water is the best wine. And uh, R.C. Sproul is like, okay, well, that's the miracle of changing water into water. Okay, not very impressive. If you want me to do that right now? I can. Um, pretty stupid. It's preposterous. Um, here's another one. Um, you've, I'm sure you've heard this one. Grape paste. 
Oh, back then, you know, water, you know, they didn't have clean water like us, and so they would make a grape paste and mix grape paste with water, and that would uh, turn into wine. But ladies and gentlemen, um, l- listen to the following pieces of Scripture. Uh, listen to the, the, the lunacy of that. Um, oh, I think I marked it. Yeah, listen, listen to this. Um, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This is in Romans 14. It is good not to eat meat or drink grape juice or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I changed wine to grape juice. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Oh, does it? Don't eat grape juice. Don't drink grape juice if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. Why would grape juice do that? Oh, is that, is that Welsh's Concord? Oh. What is offensive about that? How about this? Um, the, par- the parable of the Good Samaritan. He went up to him and bound up his wounds, applying oil and grape juice. Can you imagine laying there going, dude, what are you, what, why am I so sticky? What are, you, what are you pouring on me? Is that grape juice? Now, if it had an antiseptic quality, that would make the parable make sense, wouldn't it? How about this? Um, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. Listen. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than grape juice. <laughs> Doesn't have the same poetic flow to it, does it? Um, all right, I have an illustration. My, my, I, I, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But we went to somebody's house, a family member's house, on a big, fancy celebration, big, you know, Christmas, Easter kind of a thing. And um, we got, I got in a discussion with him, and he, he very sternly, he goes, wine is a mocker. And uh, out of graciousness, I said, yes, it is. Quite, quite true. But all these years later, I've always regretted not saying, yes, it is, and widen gladdens the heart. Psalm 104. You want to, you can, I can throw as many positive ones as you can throw negative ones. The issue, ladies and gentlemen, is drunkenness. If it's an issue that makes your brother or sister stumble, then by all means, refrain. What's the big deal? If it's going to cause, make somebody stumble, then, then don't do it in front of them. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't threaten their conscience. But if not, friends... Um, uh, don't throw your privilege out. Oh, uh, by the way, some, some of you have lost your privilege. It's okay to do that. It's okay to lose your privilege. Um, it's okay to say amen and look at that shot glass and go, that is so gracious, but I can't. It would be okay to do that. If it, were, if it would be sin and a violation of your conscience, it would be, that would be fine. But uh, friends, if you take this story and you throw out the wine, you're throwing the Savior out with it. I'm just telling you. It's just... Uh, as logical as can be if you look at the whole of the scriptures. All right, all that controversial stuff said, um, application for your life. In that culture, it would have been a disgrace to fall short on the wedding feast. And what does Jesus do? He supplies in graciousness and abundance, and uh, maybe even overage. I mean, if he left him with 600 bottles of wine, there might have been a little bit of cash sale that happened afterward, and he leaves him with a little bit of a, of a what do you call that, trousseau or whatever, whatever that is, a little, uh, is that it, trousseau, a little something to go on. Um, anyway, all to say, they were falling short, and Jesus supplied in graciousness and abundance. Do you think there's a gospel connection to that? There certainly is. All right, our last point, the home stretch. Time's it. Um, yeah, we got to hurry. Manifested glory. 
certifying Jesus. Look at verse 11 of our passage. Um, um, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does it mean that he manifested his glory? Well, his first act of divine power was exercised at a wedding feast. That's pretty substantial. Um, The pictures that the Bible paints of Christ and his bride, Christ and his church are vivid. It's noteworthy that he did this at a wedding feast. And by the way, it's also noteworthy uh, that he is sanctioning the institution of marriage, which God put in place in its proper form at creation. He manifested his glory in that way. Here's another one. His divine power is shown in the midst of his sinless love. Um, he, he, he assists. Um, he is sinless in his assistance, and his divine power is shown. How about this one? He lavishly supplied. And friends, if he lavishly supplied, he gave plenty. Uh, if he'll do that in the physical realm, do you not think that he would do that in the spiritual realm? And lastly here, the manifestation of his glory is this, that his disciples believed in him. And guess what? So did his mom. They believed in him. <coughs> they saw a demonstration of his divine power over creation. And here's how one commentator put it. He said, the all-creating word, that's Jesus with a capital W, personified, the word personified. The all-creating word cannot be held ransom by the constraints of his own creation. Now, friends, um, we'll close this way. We're out of time. Um, In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. You know what that means? Jesus is maker, not one who was made. He was not propped up. He was not elevated. (coughs) He was maker. And friends, for you and me, that the all-creating word cannot be held ransom by the constraints of his own creation, guess what that means? You too. You're his creation. He's not going to be held... Uh, by your constraint. He has broken through a fallen world to save sinners, and I hope that you're one of them who has also believed. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> forgive me if I've, <coughs> excuse me, forgive me if I've uh, stumbled into um, untruths. Forgive me if I've caused anyone to stumble. Rather, Lord, what we want is what your truth says. So refine us by it, Lord. Your word is the truth. Sanctify us by that truth. We pray, Lord, that we would be men and women who um, see Jesus for who he is, say, yes, we believe, and yes, we submit. We pray it for his glory. Amen.